You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Welcome uh, back, everybody. Um, I just wanted to say that this is the first time we're doing a CRST podcast live. Um, we wanted to do it in this style to kind of be in keeping with the fact that we are the young ophthalmologists and we like to do something new and different. Um, so I'd like to introduce to you uh, Ricardo Vinciguerra, who's my co-host for this uh, afternoon or late morning. Um, he's an anterior segment surgeon and established researcher in Italy. Then we have Tanya Trin, who's an accomplished anterior segment surgeon and physician CEO from Australia, as well as David Smudger, who's an established refractive surgeon, innovator, and president of the Israeli Society of Refractive Surgery. Thank you, Radhika. And uh, we also have my good friend, Roger Saldivar. He's also a very well-established refractive surgeon and health innovator based in Argentina, Mendoza. Then we have Pooja Kamar, uh, as well refractive surgeon and translation researcher based in India. And my friend and co-host, Radhika Rampat, anterior segment surgeon and associate academic director of the RSA Fellowship Program, United Kingdom. Thank you so much. So without uh, further ado, I'm going to pass over to Tanya. Um, Tanya, you have been a role model for women in refractive surgery, allowing us to you know, speak up and call out gender bias. Um, and I'm so excited to have you here today. Could you give us four principal or practical tips that you can share about minimizing unconscious gender bias in the workplace? Yes. Um, look, I'd like to say thank you so much for having me um, on this CRST live podcast and the opportunity to speak to you about four practical tips to look at gender bias in ophthalmology. And it is a really uncomfortable topic and um, sometimes I question myself why I traveled 27 hours to be here. And it's really because this meeting in particular is a high concentration of the leaders of not only your own refractive or anterior segment or whatever subspecialty practice you are, but it's also our industry leaders, our heads of departments, our heads of residency programs, fellowship directors. Um, and so it's a really valuable opportunity to speak openly about these issues that affect about 50% of your uh, current trainees. So I find that if I can break it up into four different areas that we need to focus on, and the study that I placed up um, from Dr. Gill and Professor Helen Danish-Meyer really highlights and summarizes the difficulties that your female trainees, which comprise about 45% of your trainees now, but only 30% of actual female ophthalmologists around the world, the issues that affect these workforces and how you might be able to be a part of improving that um, for a large part of your group. The first thing is to identify the problem, and I wanted to make reference to a landmark study that came out from Johns Hopkins University, um, which probably represents the largest systematic and um, a strategic implementation of strategies to improve women's career development at a large academic institution with a lot of ways that we, lessons that we could learn about improving what we can do. Now, these strategies were really important to be targeted. They needed to be evidence-based to have the most efficacy. They needed to be holistic and also be sensitive to discriminative groups that suffer more discrimination, such as women of color or non-binary um, uh, preferences. And they also need to reveal a certain amount of transparency in process um, so that other groups did not feel um, that they were discriminated against and also demonstrated a willingness to try. And what I found was when they identified the problem, they specifically looked at the retention and promotion of women as being a huge indicator um, of the success of that facility. And they identified um, that the retention and promotion of women was a huge problem 
that needed to be addressed within this facility. And they looked at the implementation of specific strategies to make substantive improvements in, in the way that women's careers were able to develop. And what they did was they improved the visibility of leaders, and we call about champions, and this was supported in 2019 by a, a paper from The Lancet that effective change really is not just about our individual preferences and what we're wanting to do to change the world. It really requires an evidence-based strategy to encompass individual uh, willpower, but set within structural and organizational initiatives that actually set the tone so that we can actually achieve what it is that we want to achieve. Um, some of the issues around measuring the problem is really important. So con conducting constructive interviews, small group interviews, encouraging women to come forward and speak in a safe space, but also having men lead those conversations to create that environment for women to be able to come forward. Setting targets So some of the um, concrete examples that we see around the world. Um, our French colleagues, for example, their selection processes for um, the selection of candidates to come into the residency training program are gender blind. And interestingly, this has resulted in the fact that there are no dyads, um, so father-son, father-daughter, mother-daughter, etc., cetera, um, uh, setups that exist in this. So it's really based on looking back at merit um, and placing people on a much more equal footing. There's also evidence to show that organizations that choose uh, or set criteria based on a points-based system results in a higher proportion of women being, a ch uh, being able to be afforded an award um, rather than using a traditional nominations-based system. And that's really due to the fact that we have selective implicit bias that we're often not aware of and that women and men both distribute, um, sorry, uh, distribute these kinds of characteristics that unless we're cognizant about talking about these topics and calling each other out, in a supported um, a, you know, way, then we're not really going to be making these changes at an individual level and then also at a systematic level. Um, just to touch on that, male allyship, male leadership, mentorship, and sponsorship. Now, these are four separate concepts. Male allyship really refers to the fact that men are able to be comfortable coming towards women and saying, hey, I stand by you. I see the difficulties that you are experiencing. For example, one of our largest uh, anterior segment uh, conventions held last year actually prevented women with children from attending the conference. Now, it's not like it's hard enough already for women to attend these sorts of educations. We see conferences as an opportunity to be able to distill knowledge in a very concentrated amount of time, to be able to catch up on opportunities that we may not have been able to ex be exposed to if we're on maternity leave or structures like that. But being actively excluded from activities like that simply because you're coming with a child is really something that should not be happening in 2022. But that doesn't happen. That's not the onus of the woman to try and change that system. It really is incumbent upon the leaders who are sitting in this room, who are the heads of those organizations, and who are um, really the safest space for these types of conversations to occur and create that environment that allows women to be able to you know, come forward with these and, and elicit change that really comes from you guys. Leadership we've spoken about already, but mentorship and sponsorship, we've, for those of you that know, there is quite a difference. Mentorship is that intimate relationship that you have um, with that candidate, whether it be male or female. And in the wake of the Me Too unit, 
uh, movement, and I understand that there is some um, apprehension about male leaders taking on females as mentees, that really shouldn't be an impedance to you taking up that opportunity. If I were in that male position, or if me being a still you know, junior in some aspects, I'd really appreciate it if someone came forward and said, look, I'm really sensitive to what's going on with this Me Too unit at the moment, movement at the moment. Um, is there a way that perhaps we could conduct this relationship that is of benefit that I can support you in a way that makes you feel comfortable? And just be really open about it. Um, you don't, you know, and that way it shows that you're acknowledging the issue, you're being respectful of the distance that you might need to create, um, but it means that you off also offer that opportunity for that woman to come forward and talk to you about those things. And also finally with sponsorship, we find that there is actually significant evidence to show that um, men are more likely uh, to actively invite people to invited manuscripts or invited speakers than they are with female mentees. And just being sensitive to those dynamics is really important. So thank you. Thank you so much, Sonia. It's, it's so true that you know, women may not seek uh, to develop innovative ideas that they have because they just don't feel the support or they feel discriminated against and they're already having to work very hard. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. So <clears throat> it's so true. But um, I think that here we have somebody that can also speak about innovative idea. David, um, you have a lot of great insights regarding developing new ideas. What about if you have a new idea for a new technology? What are the next steps that you think you should do in terms of bringing it to the market? So thank you, Ricardo, for uh, the question. And uh, thank you, Radhika, also for uh, the kind invitation. It's always great to be part of this young ophthalmology that makes sure to keep you young. So I'm very happy about that. Um, so I think we have to remember that we have a very special position in terms of uh, ophthalmologists when you want to innovate. Because um, when you know the world of entrepreneurship is not always the expert in the field that have an idea and is also a uh, uh, witness of everything that is happening in the field and what are the unmet needs. So we have a very special position. Um, and the only thing that we don't have, because we haven't been taught that at the medical school, is what to do next. So a um, couple of uh, months ago, uh, I've published a, a paper kind of uh, innovator five step step uh, to go through in order to uh, go over the different challenge of innovation. And the first one obviously is to have a good idea. Uh, we, we are a lot here, especially in this room, with a lot of uh, idea. And, uh, and sometimes we are afraid about sharing the idea because we are afraid of someone stealing the idea. It, it's probably one of the first thoughts we have in mind. Should we already patent that? But we have to work a little bit more on the idea. We have to challenge the idea. We have to uh, make some search, make sure that the idea does not exist. And you will be uh, surprised to see how many good ideas you have are already patented and are already out there. So you have to uh, first look over and uh, make sure your idea is, uh, is something that can, uh, uh, you can pursue instead of, of wasting some time. And then, if you want to uh, pursue with that, I, I would definitely uh, recommend first to share your idea with some uh, friends, some expert in the, uh, in the field, in the industry, 
and, and I talked to uh, someone, uh, uh, a VC person, that, that told me something that I like. He told me usually my first discussion most of the time is uh, I'm not using an NDA, I'm using a friend DA. It's something that we have to get used because it's uh, NDA, sometimes it's, it's hard. It's, it, it, it does not also protect everything. But I think the benefits of sharing an idea uh, and challenge the idea far outweighs the, the risk of someone stealing that. We're all very busy. So, so I think it's, it's probably the, the first step to do. And then, if you want to bring this idea to reality, then you have to uh, find the right partner. Because someone has to be the magician there, and someone has to take your idea into a product. So, so we have to find the right person. Also here we have to make some search and, and see who is the scientist that has the ability to improve your idea and uh, transform your idea into something that is a reality. They have another way of seeing life. I remember my, myself talking to a, uh, an engineer and I told him about uh, do you think we can? Uh, I'm not sure I can share this idea here. <laughs> no, just kidding. So uh, do you think we, we can just uh, uh, get the glasses that can be just as a smartphone? And the guy looked at me like this. I was thinking that was my sentence. And the guy said, oh, you mean transforming uh, electron into photons? So I said, well, maybe this is what I said. But so, so they have another way of, of seeing life. And, and you just have to find the right person, the one that will be uh, will like your idea, will uh, dream with you, and, and will make things possible. And um, and usually they, they have this uh, this uh, uh, statement of everything is possible, just a matter of time and money. So you understand what it will be your next step. It's the time usually we don't have, and uh, and money that that definitely something we have to find because that's what will make your idea uh, viable. And that I call that crack the code because that that's the probably the most important step. Uh, so you have to find a way to get money from investor when you don't have yet anything, and you have to go to someone that is able to create for you a small proof of concept when you don't have money for that. So you have to find uh, the combination for that, and uh, and the the usually the, there are a few ways uh, to get there, um, and sometimes it's just to get your partner into this and just tell them that from this proof of concept you will be able to, uh, you will be able to get some uh, equity or anything after that. Um, and the, the, one of the last point is the poker face, uh, and the poker face is because we do not have any experience uh, in this uh, field when you start to talk to uh, investor. And poker face is because you are like someone with the great hand at the poker, but you just simply don't know how to play that. So, so we have to learn that there are a lot of MBA to there for physician, uh, like physician CEO, and that can definitely help. Thank you, David. Uh, Roger, you're also a great health innovator. And um, can you tell us something that some health projects that you have that are ex is exciting you? Thank you, Ricardo. Yes, I'm thrilled to announce the first the, the, the launch of the ecosystem that we are creating. It's, it's an agnostic digital health ecosystem, um, fully dedicated to ophthalmology from now. And the most important thing is that it's completely integrated to our EMR that has been created from day one. 
to empower our decisions based on, in AI is very, very interesting. Can you put my, yes, okay. So what you will find here, it's a set of solutions. We all face the problem that there are many digital solutions that come, that are in, available now in an isolated way, which means that you have to add extra time to your flow. They are not integrated by one, one and each other. So what we have done is we have put everything together and the most important thing is that we are integrating this with our current EMR, which means that you don't have to be uploading double data entry all the time, one another time. So everything flows with one click. It's uh, quite interesting and I'm very, very happy to share that we have uh, developed um, a sizing methodology that is very, very disruptive based in UVM, uh, following uh, the great work of Dan Reinstein. Um, and the results that we are getting is uh, tremendous. It's already available in our ecosystem. Um, I'm going to share some of the, of the results that we are getting today, but it's very, very interesting because finally we are reaching 99% of our patients under 300 microns and we have almost 86% below to 200 microns, which is the first time that we are this high of predictability. This is very, very interesting. These are the current numbers, and despite we, today we have other solutions that are making a tremendous advance, like Lasso, that is amazing, and done racing work. Finally, we are reaching those standards that make us this a huge a bulletproof uh, advance in ophthalmology. So Revive Care is the project. You can look it online. Whoever is interested in developing something, we have 30 developers working in a company. In most of them are in Argentina. I have guys working in Europe. It's a, it's a very nice project, and I hopefully will, will find this smoothness of all these digital solutions playing for us and make it, making our life easier. That is the main point here. This, is, um, this looks super exciting, and we're really looking forward to seeing this being rolled out, hopefully um, outside of your practice as well. Um, Pooja, you have been working really hard to demonstrate how to take innovation and then apply it to patient care um, uh, with translational research, you know, basically going from the lab to the bedside. So how can biomarkers transform the way that we practice in clinic? And this is something that you've been working on. Thank you. Thank you, Radhika. Uh, I would like to first thank the ECOS team, uh, Professor Gatton and Professor Powell, Ricardo and Radhika, my thanks for having me here. So a very relevant question, Radhika, why biomarkers? Because we are going through to the idea of personalized medicine. We do apply the personalized medicine all the time. Like if you have, let's say it's a cataract practice, you when you are choosing your IL for the patient, you choose the right IL. Be it a refractive surgery, you choose the right refractive surgery for your patients. So you are applying personalized medicine over there as well. But then comes patients, like 80% of the patients are always happy with your treatment, but then comes the 20% of the patients, 20, 25% who are not happy. Whatever you do, they are not happy, be it their ocular surface conditions, be it post-refractive surgery, unhappy patient, or be it dry eyes. And you treat them with your uh, treatment modalities available, but they are not happy. So why they are not happy? The answer lies in the wound healing and the, and the biomarkers. 
and that is not like your imaging biomarkers. Those are your molecular biomarkers. So that is something which you have to keep in mind. Like we are dealing with an eye which is inflamed all the time because of your computer usage, because of your lifestyle, because of your occupational hazards. And just treating them with lubricating drops or just a cyclosporin is not going to help. We do need something which is more personalized, more customized. So not just our team, but many other teams across the world are working on a point of care diagnostic kit, where just with tears you can measure these biomarkers, what they do, what they give us. Like your glucometer kit, you just take uh, like you prick and they tell you what the uh, levels of your blood glucose levels are. So same thing for the biomarkers. And then, based on that, you can customize the treatment. Like, what treatment do you want to give? You just want to give lubricating drops, you want to give tri tri uh, cyclosporin drops, you want to give trehalose-based drops. Or you need something more dense, like if it's a severe ocular surface condition or a post-operative dry eye, you need uh, IPL-based therapy or a vector pulsation therapy. So these biomarkers just help us in that choosing the right way. But the question comes as clinician is that biomarkers, you need a laboratory setup. The answer is no. Yes, five years back, you needed a laboratory setup to do this, but that is not there anymore right now. It's just a point-of-care diagnostic kit, which takes 90 minutes to do the test. A clinician can do it, a resident, a fellow, a technician can do it. You don't need an engineer or a biologist to see what is happening and all it is. You have a normative database. You can choose whether it's normal, whether it's abnormal. Patient comes back for the next sitting, and you see whether it's responding or not. It's just like a glucose test, but uh, it's from the based of your biomarkers, and uh, it saves your time. It's just done into your clinics. It hardly takes 100 minutes for everything, and just not that it saves cost, it saves space, main manpower, time, and everything, and it's just not beneficial to us, but for the pharma companies as well, because it helps you choose the right treatment, a personalized treatment for the patient. Thank you. It's very, very exciting. Radhika, we talked last year about this on stage, um, about training in refractive surgery. So can you tell us something more about training in refractive surgery, what is available out there now, and what's the future? Sure. I mean, just to give you guys an idea, having such excellent surgeons on stage here, how did they get here? They had to work really hard and seek to be here. They are not only good refractive surgeons, but then they built on that and did something else. We all need mentors. And actually, till now, in refractive surgery, even last year when we were talking on stage, I realized that there is really not much out there. We have our you know, academic centers teaching us locally, and we have some private practices that teach us as well. But it's, it's not really a proper formal fellowship in refractive surgery. How can we be providing care to the, the most discerning of our patients with the highest expectation with something that you just learn on the fly or you know, on the side of whatever else you're doing in your fellowship? And so now, since last year, we have had a lot of developments in refractive surgery training. We have some observerships, of course, that were continuing before, um, but we also have online training now, like uh, Canabrava is doing some online training with refractive surgery. Um, from my point of view, and something that I can talk about is that, in fact, coming off stage last year, I was, um, uh, I was approached by uh, the Refractive Surgery Alliance, and I'm now the uh, Associate Academic Director for their fellowship program. And though I'm at the beginning of my career, it was great to have this uh, opportunity to be part of this program. It's a two-year program, and it's didactic training online, 
but you have a preceptor in your local place. So it's like taking your you know, private practice fellowships and then bringing that with a curriculum-based teaching on the weekend. So we have the top refractive surgeon from all over the world teaching these fellows. And we have fellows from all over the world now. We're in our third year, and we're working on the curriculum, and uh, we're really excited about this. And, you know, it just shows you what's the difference between what was being done before and what is available now. So really, now, you want to be focusing on having an opportunity to train under a good preceptor, who actually, you literally become like that preceptor. That's how good you need to be before you start independently practicing. And then you actually say, okay, um, maybe the preceptor will ask you to stay on as an associate. And that's another way of uh, building your practice also. And it's time for us to become more uh, cognizant of how we uh, you know, deliver high quality care to our patients by being fully trained. And if you do the two-year fellowship, then you end up with uh, being a you do a board exam as well, which we administrate, and you become a fellow of the World College of Refractive Surgery. So it's really exciting time right now uh, in refractive surgery, and uh, I'm really happy to share this with you. Uh, and feel free to approach me. But really, the point is not it's not just about this RSA fellowship. It's that things are changing. We have more and more things available to help us train better as well. Um, and so, you know, really thank you to everybody for coming here today and taking part in this sort of live podcast, having a little, it sounds like a chat, but we have covered a lot of ground here, uh, talking about what is really concerning young ophthalmologists right now. For more shows like the one you just listened to, check out the podcast channel on itube.net. <laughs>